We're going to finish chapter 4 today of, of 1 John. If you, if you haven't grabbed an outline, we do have some on the back table. It might be uh, beneficial um, to have just to kind of follow along. Uh, what, what we're going to do as we, as we wade through these last uh, four or so, five, however many it is, verses, five verses, um, first three verses kind of stands a little separately from the last two. Uh, I paddled the sermon Perfect Love, which really address verses 17, 18, and 19. And then when we get to verses, or 17 and 18, and then we get to verses 19, 20, and 21, it's really a summary conclusion of all of, of chapter 4. So just to kind of give you an idea of, of what, we're, what we're looking at today uh, as you follow along. Also, I'm, I'm going to be reading from... Um, New American Standard Bible this morning. I forgot my ESV, so you might wonder why the, the, the translation difference. And it's just simply that I, I grabbed one and, instead of the other. So just kind of be, be forewarned that, that when I read, it might not quite follow uh, what you have, but it is just from the NASB. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read. So if you would turn with me now to 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. And again, we'll have a break between verses 18 and 19, um, at least as far as the outline and message is concerned. Verse 17, um, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Verse 17, John addresses this perfect love. By this, love is perfected with us. This, this perfect love uh, uh, in the Greek, Strong's explains that, that it's a reference to a complete or mature love. It says to complete or make perfect by reaching the intended goal. Not a, not a means of faultless perfection. Specifically in the context of verse um, 17, so 1 John 4, 17, Strong states that this, this idea of perfect love, uh, it refers to the effectiveness of God's love in the believer demonstrating itself horizontally as it is received from above. So this, this idea of perfected love is, is in reference to God's love, not, not man's love. So, so God's love is evidenced in part, in the lives of believers by producing a confidence for the day of judgment. And the day of judgment, again, um, by this love is perfected so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. That is for the believer the day we first stand face to face with God. Um, there is no day of judgment for the, the believer. Right, you get that. I don't want you to get that. Okay, there is no day of judgment for the believer. Right. So in this reference here to the day of judgment for us, for those who are saved and will be saved, right? It is that day that we stand face to face with the Almighty. 
And we understand that this confidence, right, that he's referring to also, as, as with really everything, or, or mostly everything for the believer, right, it, it, it deals with the issue or, or falls within the scope of progressive sanctification, right? I don't expect a new believer to necessarily have this immediate confidence, right? Not that they can't, not that God can't and won't and doesn't work that in and through them, okay? But we do understand that that, that confidence will grow or we expect it to grow as a believer is, is grows in sanctification. Now, this confidence that John speaks of is ultimately a confidence in God's grace, when we think about judgment, in God's grace and mercy. Remember, grace is what? It's unmerited favor. All right? So grace is getting what we don't deserve. And this is in a, in a positive sense, right? So what, what are we getting that we don't deserve, especially in the context of 1 John 4, 17? We're getting a pardon, right? Or for those of us who are believers, we've been pardoned, okay? We've gotten what we don't deserve, and that's a pardon from God's righteous wrath. And then mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So here on one hand, we've getting grace, right? That is a pardon, right? And mercy is getting what we don't deserve. And, and what do we deserve? Well, we deserve punishment. So we've been given a pardon, grace, and we've not been given punishment, mercy. So this confidence then that, that John speaks of here that we have is ultimately a confidence in God's grace and mercy. Well, we know in part it stems from his love, right? Because it says that at the very beginning, right? But this is love perfected with us, right? And then as we continue to ask why, we go down to part two of, uh, of, of verse 17. It says, because as he is, he referring to Jesus, right? Because as, as he is, so also are we in this world. As he is, as what is Christ? I mean, what is it referring to? As, as he is. Well, what is he? He is, what, he is righteous. And so are we in this world. Now, now Christ is, um, I mean, he is righteous, right? I mean, this is one of, one of God's nature, I mean, attributes concerning his nature. I mean, he is by very nature righteous. And, and we are not, right? We are the opposite of that we are unrighteous, for there's no unrighteous, no, not one, right? For, for man's righteousness is as filthy as, or is, is as filthy rags, okay? Um, but yet it says, for as he is, so are we in this world. There's this idea, and I know we've discussed this in the past, and we'll continue to do so as Scripture necessitates, but um, this is a doctrine or idea or whatever you want to call it of imputed righteousness, right? Um, we had a negative, we being believers, right? We had a negative balance concerning righteousness, right? A way to think of this, right? And now we have a positive balance, right? Um, That's imputed righteousness, right? So our righteousness account was negative, right? And then Jesus, right, has imputed righteousness to us. So that took our negative balance in the righteousness department, up past zero, and gave us a positive balance. And of course, that balance isn't ours, but it's Christ's. Let's look at uh, Isaiah 53, 11. Isaiah 53, 11, we see this 
truth proclaimed here. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He will justify the many. He will impute righteousness to the many and thereby they will be considered they'll be considered justified see when God sees me right when he sees you when he sees us right when he sees his children those who are Christians right what does he see does he see our unrighteousness no right we've got this imputed righteousness so what he sees is he sees not your righteousness because you don't have any okay even as a believer you don't right he sees the righteousness of his son imputed righteousness. What, what an amazing, what an amazing reality. I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine or, or fathom, really comprehend that, that. I mean, I understand like intellectually, right? I get it. Imputed righteousness, right? My righteousness, negative, okay? Christ's righteousness, infinite. So he's taken that infinite righteousness. He's posited deposited in my account on my behalf and now before God I have this positive balance it's not mine but it was put there by Christ and so when God looks upon me he doesn't see my unrighteousness right but he sees the righteousness of his of his son and I I get it intellectually but I think I am so amazed by that reality, I'm 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 put at such awe by that reality that I still can't get it. You know, I can't I can't comprehend it. I mean, it is truly amazing. And that's why, according to this text, that God's love produces what confidence or should produce confidence in the life of the believer for that day of judgment. Confidence isn't in me, right? I have no confidence in me for that day that I stand face to face with the Lord. I have no confidence in you for that day that you stand face to face with the Lord. My confidence is what? It's in Christ, right? And it's in his righteousness that covers me, that covers you. In verse 18, he says, um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in, in love. Um, I think this verse historically has been misused, if, if you will. So there are lots of things in life that I'm afraid of. Um, I'm afraid of the ground. Uh, now, some people would say that they're afraid of heights. I think Randy's afraid of heights. I'm actually afraid of the ground. Um, and that's what, that's what kills you, right? It's the ground when you hit it. It's not the, the distance in between, right? Um, I'm afraid of bats, if you don't know that. Some, some of you know that, but I have this, 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 this intense fear of bats, you know, little flying black mammals that have, like, fangs and will get you, right? I, 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 don't, I don't do bats, right? Um, and listen, there are, there are rational fears that we have in life, um, and there are ir- irrational fears um, this verse doesn't apply to those. Um, I've heard it 
numerous occasions. You know, people just strip this, this verse out of context and say that, well, you know what the Bible says, the perfect love casts out fear, so you shouldn't be afraid of bats. Now, there are probably other, other reasons why I shouldn't be afraid of bats, and, and even biblical reasons why I shouldn't be afraid of bats, okay? doesn't mean you don't have healthy respect for certain things, even the ground or bats or whatever it might be, right? Um, but listen, this verse doesn't, um, this verse doesn't apply specifically concerning fear, right? This verse is talking about what? It says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, right? But we got we to consider the entire verse because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Going back to verse 17, what? The one who's perfected in love, right? Has confidence on the day of judgment, okay? So this verse is dealing with perfect love, driving away fear of, of judgment and of, of punishment. Listen, God um, will not. In fact, God cannot. You know, there are things that God can't do, right? I mean, let's, let's, maybe you haven't thought about that or, or you haven't considered that much. Um, but, but people say, God can do everything. No, actually, God can't do, do everything. There are certain things that God can't do. And one of the things that God cannot do is judge those who belong to him. So if you are a Christian, right, if you have turned from your sin, repented, right, and believed, right, and then have been saved, again, not a result of your repentance or faith, but a result of Christ's work, if, you've, if, if that's you, right, understand that God cannot judge you. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a possibility, right? Why? Well, in fact, the sin of the believer has already been judged. I mean, get that. I want you to, to get that, to understand that, to, to really stand on that promise um, that if you are Christ's and he is yours, that your sin, right, like, like all of it, like from, from the very first uh, experiential sin, if you will, right, all the way to the sins that you've not even committed yet, that you will, right, has already been judged and has been judged in Christ. And because your sin has already been judged in Christ, God can no longer judge you for your sin. It's done. It's been handled. 2 Corinthians 5.21 verse that we're all familiar with. He, God, made him, Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, right? Stood between God the Father and us, bearing the full weight of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and was judged, and was punished on our behalf, right? And that punishment was executed as he was executed. And of course, we know that God was satisfied in that, right? And he rose three days later and, and ascended to heaven. 
where he now waits and we wait for his return. But as a result of that, you cannot be judged, right? You cannot be punished because Christ was judged and Christ was punished in your place. God says in Psalm 103.12, concerning really the, the, um, the judgment, if you will, and punishment of our sin. I mean, we know that God knows when we sin, right? I mean, our sin cannot be hidden from God, right? And we know that he knows that. But concerning the punishment of our sin, uh, the judgment of our sin, in 103.12 he says, As far as the east is from the west. How far is that? I mean, can we measure that? I mean, it's not even, it just keeps going, doesn't it? I mean, that's, it's forever. There is no boundary on that. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he, what, removed our transgressions, our sin from us. So there is no coming judgment for the Christian. I love Romans 8.1, right? For there is no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ. I mean, again, what an amazing truth. What an amazing truth that should have just profound implications on our lives and how we live our lives. There's no condemnation before, before God for us. It, east is west. As far as that is, no condemnation. Done. Right? Forgiven guiltless, if you will, right? Again, because of Christ. It's absolutely just incredible. So we know that there is no coming judgment for the Christian, but, but that being said, and there should be no fear of the coming judgment because there is no coming judgment, but that being said, we do understand, and it is important even though this text doesn't address it because we're considering judgment. Um, listen, there is the present possibility of discipline. So we do understand that there is a difference. I want you to understand that there's a difference between um, uh, judgment and, and discipline. Concerning discipline, Hebrews, um, let's look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, um, verses, I'll start in verse 3. We'll go 3 through um, verse 11. For consider him, again, Hebrews 12, 3. For consider him, him being Jesus, um, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. All right, difference right there between discipline and judgment. 
right? Judgment for the purpose of what? It's, it's punishment, right? Discipline for our good. Now listen, when God judges, right, and he punishes those who die apart from him, I want you to understand that God is glorified, all right? So God's glorified regardless, okay? But concerning us, people, right, God is glorified in judgment and in punishment, right? And when, when God judges and punishes, it's not for the good of those whom he judges and punishes, okay? But it is for his glory. But when he disciplines, right, he disciplines what? Those whom he loves, he disciplines, right? He's glorified. He disciplines those whom he loves. And he does it for our good. And it says why. So that, this is uh, again, uh, 12... 10b, if you will. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? Um, so discipline is not to be feared, right? There is no fear in judgment for the believer, right? There is no fear in punishment for the believer because there is none. There is no judgment and there is no punishment. And the reality is, is there should be no discipline. I'm sorry, there should be no fear in discipline, but in fact, discipline when needed should be welcomed. Now, I think that's a hard thing at times to, to think about or, or to swallow. I'm just thinking about it in, in relation, uh, in regards, if you will, to my children. Um, it's, it's, it's always so funny as a parent and, of course, as a fallen human being, at times it's hard to, to, to discipline my children, right? Um, and, and at times it's hard to do it um, justly or, or rightly or lovingly or whatever the case might be, if you will. Um, but it... But it's often funny how when, when one of my children is, is disciplined, it's, it's not a pleasant process for me. It's not a pleasant process for them. But the results, um, I think, of discipline is what absolutely amazes me. You know, they need it. You know they need it. They're going to get it. They don't want it. And after the discipline, what do I usually see within my kids? That they're grateful that they got it. Now, not that they came out and said, wow, Dad. I'm so glad that, that you disciplined me. But more often than not, I see relief in my children after I discipline them. And I don't think it's relief because um, I got it over with, right? I think it's relief because they know that Dad loves me and he cares for me and he wants what's best for me. And I, I think in that, right, Disciplined should be something that is welcomed. Not now. That being said, um, when it comes to to discipline and God, I'd prefer just to avoid it altogether. Okay, um, when it's necessary, it's necessary, <laughs> and it should be something that we we welcome and not fear because we know it is for our good, right? Because it produces holiness. Okay. Um, 
That being said, right, there, there are other ways that we can, if you will, achieve this, this same holiness. And uh, I think that also comes just from avoiding the sin that requires discipline. All right, so discipline is something that should be welcomed when needed, not feared. And yet I think it's something that should be avoided um, uh, to the extent that we, what, we avoid, that we avoid sin, that we live life um, as repenters if you will. Back in, uh, where are we, First John 4. Let's go back to verse 18. B. Um, I'll read 18 again, though. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, I think in verse 18b, I think really we can attribute this to, to the one who has a, a life that's characteristic of, of fear concerning judgment and punishment. Um, I think every believer at times has, has probably been fearful or struggled with this, this fear of judgment, this fear of, of punishment, okay? And I think at best... It's evidence of, of immaturity as a believer, and at worst, it's evidence of not being saved. And again, I think for the believer who it, it just it, it kind of creeps up here or there, a new believer who, who is immature, right, that's one thing. But I think when we're, when we're talking about an individual who professes faith, and yet their entire life is, is one lived in fear of coming judgment and punishment, um, more often than not, that's probably evidence of them being being lost and not being saved um, at all. Regardless, I think it's something that, that should cause any of us to, to reflect upon or to examine, you know, why why do I feel this way? Um, something we'll, we'll consider here momentarily, um, a little bit more in depth. Um, now, as I look at verses 17 and verse 18, this, this idea of perfect love, how do, we, how do we apply this? I mean, it's something I struggled with this week as I studied. Well, how do I take this home and how does this apply to me? I'm not fearful for coming judgment and punishment because I know that it doesn't apply to me, right? So, okay, I got that. What do I do with it, right? Um, listen, the reality is this. True Christians... Do not have to fear judgment. Again, why? Because there is no judgment for us. I get that, right? My guess is all of us in here intellectually get that. So what do we do with that? Listen, that, that truth, that reality, I find it absolutely freeing. I, I, you should find it absolutely freeing. In what sense? I think it's freeing for obedience out of desire and out of delight, listen, there are those who serve God. I'll, I'll, I'll use that term loosely. Those who obey God, again, I'll use that term loosely, right? And they do so out of fear. Because they fear judgment and they fear punishment. Now, as one who has been saved from that, where it's not even a possibility, we're absolutely free now to obey out of desire 
to obey out of delight. And even when I screw up intentionally or unintentionally, sins of omission, sins of commission, doesn't mean I don't repent. But I don't have to fear. He's not going to punish me. He's not going to judge me. It's been taken care of. And if my behavior necessitates discipline, well, then let me welcome it. And let you welcome it, for it's for our good, for God's glory, that we may be holy as He is holy. I had a conversation with a, a, a friend um, who, who's an atheist, thinks he is kind of a crazy deal. Um, and he made a reference to me about you religious people, because he, he, he throws us in with every other religion. You know, I mean, there's no distinction. Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, Taoism, uh, Islam, whatever other ism you want to throw in there. We're, we're all in the same group to him, right? And he said, you know, you're, you're constantly, I don't even remember the, the, the gist of the conversation, but he, he made the statement that you're constantly working and you're constantly doing so you can, you know, stay in God's good graces. You can, you can, you can earn his favor and you can stay in his good graces. And I was thinking, that's the difference right there between Christianity and all the other isms that, that you lump us into, right? I don't have to do anything to gain God's favor, right? I don't have to do anything to stay in God's good graces, right? There is no fear in judgment. There is no fear in punishment or for punishment. Why? Because it's been done. Right? We've made this reference before, that Christianity is a done religion. Every other religion out there, if you will, is a do religion. You've got to do, do, do to earn favor. You've got to do, do, do to hopefully stay right before God. But for Christianity, for us, it's been done. Christ did. And we have favor with God because of Jesus. Right? We remain in good standing with God regardless of how we live. Right? And that's not permission to live um, uh, uh, in a way that displeases him. But regardless of that, right, we will remain, right, if you will, in God's good graces because of Christ. See, there is no fear in judgment. There is no fear of punishment. And as believers, we should, we should be freed to do because Christ did. And we do so again out of desire and out of out of delight, to please Him, to glorify Him, to honor Him, right? Not to earn, gain, or keep anything because it's already been done on our behalf because of Jesus. I think that's how we apply this practically, right? Know that you're free to obey. Right? And then when you encounter your, your atheist friend who says you're all the same, you try to please God, I don't have to try to please God. Christ pleased Him on my behalf. Though I want to please Him, no, I want to be obedient, right? But I don't do it for His grace, right? Because I've already received that. Now, if there is fear, and I mentioned this just moments ago, um, if there is fear, I think we have to ask why, right? I think there's, there's those who fall in the category of um, fear concerning eternal judgment and eternal punishment. And again, that might be a result of just immaturity as a believer, right? New believer, immature believer. Maybe there's sin in your life that hasn't been dealt with, right? And by dealt with, you know what I mean? That you haven't turned from, you haven't repented from. As a believer, 
all right? And having the weight of that sin loom over you, instead of desiring God's discipline, you're dreading it, and in that you're being fearful of maybe a judgment that doesn't even exist for you or a punishment that doesn't even exist for you. Again, I think these are things we just ask why, right? Maybe it's false conversion. Maybe it's, it's no conversion. Now, in all those situations, I think the solution is the same, though. It's to repent. For the believer, it's to repent from maybe that undealt with sin, right? Or, or to repent from, um, you know, your lack of or one's lack of um, maturity. Now, and I say that, let, let, me, let me, immaturity as a believer, right? I mean, someone's saved, right? And the moment they're saved, that believer is immature, right? Due to, in part, if you will, at that point, no fault of their own. They're a new believer, right? Maybe they've never opened their Bible before. We don't expect them to know these things, all right? But what about the person who's been a believer for, you know, five years, 10 years, 25 years, and is, is, is as, in part, immature as a new believer, right? That immaturity, I, I believe, is sin, right? Uh, why? Well, there could be many reasons why. And again, that's something that you're going to have to ask and examine in your own life. And in that case, I do believe the result, or not the result, but the solution is, is to repent. But something else concerning fear, maybe not an eternal fear, uh, fearing that, that final judgment or that final punishment, I think that the, the prosperity gospel, okay, um, and, and when, we, when we deal with that, you know, I, there are genuine believers who ha- are caught up in the prosperity gospel with health and, and wealth, right? And I think we see, we've even seen this theology creep into, you know, conservative, evangelical, Baptist, Reformed, Baptist, whatever, fill-in-the-blank churches, where we have more of this not eternal fear, but this temporal feel, fear, right? Um, but it is a fear of judgment and punishment. Oh, if I do this or if I don't do that, God's going to get me. Uh, maybe I'm the only one that's ever thought that, but I've, I've thought that before, that if I do this or I don't do this, God, as a believer, God, he's going to get me. God's not going to get you, right? Christ has been God on your behalf. There might be discipline, right? But that's not what I'm talking about. He's not going to be pleased with me and he's going to get me, or I'm not going to get I'm not going to get what I want, right? Again, this text is dealing primarily with this eternal fear of judgment and punishment, right? But I think that as believers, at times we struggle with this more temporal fear of he's going to get me here and now and I'm not going to get what I want or I'm going to get something that I don't want, you know, kind of kind of thing. And again, I think when we're faced that, the solution is the same as the others. It's to repent because it's sin and it's to turn from that and to turn to Christ and to seek discipline, right, when necessary. Okay. Verse 19, he begins uh, a summary conclusion of chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. We can only love God because of his love for us. We can only love others because of God's love for us. Now, we've considered this truth regarding salvation, right? It's even present in the text from, from 17 and 18, right? This perfect love, God's love, right? This is only a reality. The fact that, that we, we don't have to fear judgment and punishment is only a reality because God loves us and he loved us first. Right? We've been reminded of this reality um, 
multiple times um, as we've waded through not just 1 John chapter 4, but the entirety of, of this letter. We're going to be reminded of it again, right? Not just in 1 John, but in other texts as we consider. Um, I was thinking about that song, you know, today that, that Tim led us in. Um, uh, I can't even think of it now, but basically I did not choose you right for that could never be, right? My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me, right? We love because he first loved us. We chose him, if you will, because he, what, first chose us, right? I mean, this reality is here in 1 John uh, 4.19. But the point of this, this verse, right, and this text is this. It's God gets all the credit and all the glory. Regarding love. Really regarding all good. But it takes the focus off of man and places it on God. And rightfully so, because he is the source and the center of the Christian's love. So what John says in verse 19 is this. It's not about us. It's, it's, about, it's about God. We don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear punishment. Um, because it's not about us. Because it's about God. Our confidence isn't in us but our confidence is in God, right? We can love God and we can love others because of God, because of God, because of God, because of God, right? Again, the point is to take the focus and emphasis off of man and rightfully place it on God. Now, verses 20 and 21, this is actually the seventh time that John um, addresses this, right? And what we have here is we have a, a warning and a, a command he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Again, this should sound familiar because I think we've seen it well, multiple times, right, um, in chapter 4 alone. He says, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And again, for the one who says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. Again, a life characterized by this. Listen, we struggle with sin as believers, and we're going to struggle with sin until Christ returns or calls us home. That's, that's the reality of it. Now, I don't say that to justify it because it doesn't justify it at all. It never will justify it, right? I say that because there are going to be times when, you're, when, when the attitude of your heart, right, the words out of your mouth, and the actions of, of your life, right, uh, express hatred towards one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. Now, if that's a characteristic of your life, then this verse applies to you, right? Then you are a liar, okay? But for the Jew believer, it's not going to be a characteristic of your life. It's going to be an event here or an event there that needs to be repented of, right? <laughs> needs to be avoided. But in verse 20, again, he's talking about one whose life is characterized by this, okay? Um, if you say, I love God, and you hate your brother, you're a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen. I mean, you can't love the one who you see. You definitely can't love the one whom you haven't seen, right? He calls you a liar. He says you're a liar. A liar what? You don't love others, right? You don't love God. If you don't love others, you don't love God. It's really a summary of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, right? The first four commandments, what? Deal with God, don't they? They do. And the last six commandments deal with your fellow human being, right? 
Jesus summarizes this in Matthew 22. They were questioning him, and I think it was an attorney that, that was trying to trick him. Uh, 22, verse 36 through 40. Um, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Really just again summarize the first four right, of the Ten Commandments. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. See, if you don't love God, number one, right, the greatest and foremost, right, then you don't, in fact, cannot love others. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. You don't belong to him. You're lying to God. You're lying to others. And you're lying to your so, so in part in verse 20, we have a warning. You don't love others. He says you don't love God. In verse 21, then he gives us a command. And this commandment we have from him. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. All right. So 1 John 4, verse 7. Right? And this is where he began, and this is where he's ending. All right. He said, Beloved, what? Let us love one another, for love is from God. Gives us the command to love, gives us the reason why we can love, and the source from which as believers our love flows. And then he deals with it throughout chapter 4, and then he ends here on this exact same commandment. One with a warning, verse 20, and then this commandment. This commandment we have from him again, that the one who loves God, commandment, should love his brother also. Listen, God's love for us, and I, I think that, um, I think that this would be my summary um, of chapter 4. So I'm going to give you my summary of chapter 4 here. And then make another point, and then a final point, and the final point is my application for chapter 4, okay? I mean, if I, had to, if I had to narrow it down to one sentence for each, okay? My summary is this. God's love for us is demonstrated in our love for him as we love others. It's my summary of 1 John chapter 4. I'm going I'm to say it one more time. God's love for us is demonstrated in our love for him as we love others. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Right? If you love God, you will love others. Right. Again, remember though, when we love, it's not simply thought or emotion, right? but it's indeed an action that flows from thought and emotion as God, right? has loved us. All right, now, so here's my application. I'm going to end on this for all of chapter four. If I had to, again, summarize it in one application. I would say beloved, right? Because that's what the Bible says. No, but you are, you are the beloved, right? Beloved, 
right? Let's continue to pursue and excel at loving one another as we love God because he first loved us. It's chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love. Amazing love, oh, what sacrifice the Son of God given for, given for us. Our debt you paid, our death you died, that we might live. How can that love not, not motivate us to love others? How can that love not overflow out us and through us as we seek to love others? Because you first loved us. Lord, I know it's something that we struggle with. It's something that we are going to struggle with until you return or until you call us home. But Lord, let us love one another because you love us and because we love you. And let that love not be simply made known to us. I mean, I I, I want it to be. And I want the church to know that I love them and, and they me and us one another. But let that love flow out of us so... So incredibly that this lost and dying world around us would would see that love, would would see agape love. That as a result of that, Jesus, they would ask and we would tell, and you would continue to save for your glory and for the good of all whom you died for and who you have saved and will save. Jesus, we we do, we love you. And I know we say that all the time. We love you, and we love you because you first loved us. We're so grateful, and we're so thankful. And we ask that you would continue to glorify yourself in us and through us. Your precious and holy name, we pray these things.